All right. My apologies for my technical inefficiencies here. Anyways, Kevin, thank you for shepherding us. And Danny, praise team, thanks for shepherding us in the Word. There's no greater joy, even in spite of our technical and my technical shortcomings, to be in the house of the Lord and to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, the one we sang about, His living presence, His real presence, because He is where His people are, and that is with us this day. And uh, that's a joy and a privilege. I want to um, make a quick plug and use the pulpit, hopefully for God's ends, this Tuesday night. For those of you who are going to retreat, we're going to have the opportunity to uh, spend some time with our retreat speaker by way of Zoom. So I would like to encourage you, if you are going to retreat, and even if you're not going to retreat, to please join us. We'll have an opportunity to spend some time with Pastor uh, Rodney Anderson and his wife, Glenna. Um, They are remarkable and dear people. Rodney was an engineer before he went to seminary, and then the Lord called him to China, and then the Lord called him back to oversee Grace Missions International and to help oversee our brother uh, Ricardo Morales as well. And we'll have that opportunity uh, to spend some time with them Tuesday night via Zoom at 8.30 just to get to know them, hear their testimonies, hear how the Lord saved them and brought them together and the ministry that the Lord has called them to. And hopefully that will warm our hearts and prepare our hearts for when we gather together that they will not be strangers and make it even more sweet as we come into the Word together with uh, Pastor. Pastor Rodney, and for his wife to be an encouragement to the ladies. So uh, please join us at that time. Well, Danny's leading this morning was very timely and helpful. I think for what we are going to consider this morning, Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to ask KV team if I could have my first slide. And as we jump into Matthew's gospel, the question I have for you this morning, which Danny already primed and spoke to you about is who or what is leading your life? Who or what is leading your life, your family, your relationships? Is it your family? Is it your work? Is it your friends? Or are you doing as our culture tells us so frequently to follow your heart? Follow your heart. Well, years ago during my ridiculous era, which there are many years as part of that era in my life, I followed my heart and I was in northern Italy with a group of young believers and we ended up uh, stranded in a farmer's field in the north of Italy. We did not intend to end up in a field of vegetables in a rental car, but What took us there, as much as I'd like to say they were the bad directions of a strange Italian man who did not understand English terribly well, as much as I would like to blame him, I have to take it one step further and consider why did I listen to that man in the first place? Well, I was following my heart. There were only two words I think I really knew well on that trip to Italy, and they were the words Dove Prada. And we were on a pilgrimage to find the Prada factory outlet in northern Italy. And because of that dream 
to worship at the Mecca of high fashion. We ended up heeding the advice of a well-meaning but confused Italian man. And the result of that was being in a rental car in some sort of vegetable field in the middle of northern Italy. And I use that by way of illustration to make the point that where we end up in life might not be what we had initially hoped for or intended. In fact, it rarely does. But it's always the result, brothers and sisters, of who or what is leading our lives. Who or what is leading our lives. We may not end up where we want to be. We may not end up where we set out to go. But at the end of the day, where we end up is always the direct result of who or what is leading our lives. And I'll take that one step further. What matters most, brothers and sisters, is not where we begin our journey. What matters most is where our journey ends. Ending well and ending in the right place. And brothers and sisters, I say this because I believe this is one of the critical lessons of our text for this morning. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. In Matthew 2, 1 through 12, this is a text that's all about a journey. It's all about a group of pilgrims or a group of men who leave the comfort and the privileges and the security of their successful lives to set out on a journey or a quest that turns out to be far more difficult and far more dangerous than they probably initially thought it was when they first set out. And through that journey, it's only the gospel... It's only the intervention of God's saving grace that brings them safely home. And what I'm referring to, of course, brothers and sisters, is the journey of the Magi. The journey of the Magi, which according to Matthew, is about something far more urgent, something far more important, something far more relevant than the warm, fuzzy tradition of our Christmas cards and our nativity sets that portray three oriental kings presenting their gifts to the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph beneath the light of the Christmas star. Well, as we come back this morning to the God-breathed words of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew, by repeatedly pointing us back to the promises of God's Word. That's what Matthew does throughout his Gospel, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled. He comes and brings us back repeatedly to the promises of God and the promises of God's Word. What he does is he reminds us repeatedly that he personally is not interested in the traditions or myths or opinions of men. Matthew's burden is the burden of the Holy Spirit. And it's the burden of the gospel. It is the burden of showing us who Jesus is. Not according to our traditions. Not according to our imagination. Not according to our religion. Not according to the myths of men. He wants to show us who Jesus is according to God's Word. And it is the burden of showing us who or what is leading our lives. 
This, brothers and sisters, I believe is the message of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me there and we'll read verses 1 through 12. And it's going to take us a few Sundays to get through this. Matthew 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or literally magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men, or the magi, secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Matthew's account of the journey of the Magi, it begins with Jesus' birth, and it ends with the Magi defying the commandment of King Herod. And defying that command in order to follow the words and the path of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is no small act of faith. Especially when we consider who King Herod was. This King Herod is King Herod the Great. And he was referred to as King Herod the Great because he was arguably the greatest king of Judea since King Solomon. And that was a reputation that was validated historically by his accomplishments and his reign and his political power and supremacy, not only over the region of Judea, but also through much of the ancient Near East. The testimony even to this day is what is referred to by historians as King Herod's colossal building projects. 
And these include his rebuilding or expansion of the second temple in Jerusalem, his building of the port and city of Caesarea, his building of Masada and the palace in Herodium, along with many other temples and palaces throughout the ancient Near East. If you have that privilege and opportunity to go to Israel, today you will still go through that area and you will still see that some of the most remarkable sites that still remain are sites or buildings that were built by this same King Herod. Some 2,000 years after the fact, when I took, as you recall, my wonderful wife Julie on that uh, unofficial honeymoon to Israel with TMS. And if any of you are interested in doing that and doing that for a honeymoon, come speak to me. But as I did, initially as we traveled through Israel, what happened, I think, for Julie, I can say this because she's not here with me this morning, but she's watching. Initially, it was a little underwhelming because you go from tell site to archaeological dig, to archaeological dig, and you hear about all these wonderful things that come out of Scripture, and you stand there and you look at a pile of rocks. Very unimpressive. A lot of imagination. Until you come to what Herod built. And you stand beside stones that have been quarried and cut, that are three times the size of a man, and that weigh one or two tons. And you go high up into the hill, into remarkable palaces that still retain their architectural design. Circular, high, staircases, feats and wonders of the architectural world of the ancient Near East. And it definitely is, brothers and sisters, even as you go to Masada, And that fortress that played a key part in the rebellion of the Jews in the Jewish war that ultimately ended up in the destruction of the temple. And brothers and sisters, if you get a chance to go, it is a wow. He really was remarkable and great by every definition the world has to offer. But that title, Herod the Great, describes not only his great ambition and his accomplishments, it also describes the greatness of his brutality. It was by serving the interests of Rome that Herod had become the official king of the Jews. It was by the appointment of the Roman Senate in 39 BC that Herod was given that title, the king of the Jews. And it was under Roman Rule that he himself ruled as king in the region of Judea for 37 years. Now if you go through the history of the world, most kings last 5 to 10 years, if they're lucky, before they get poisoned, or before they get killed, or before they get beheaded. Herod lasted 37 years. And that... Brothers and sisters, is no small feat. And much of that, obviously, is a testimony to his brutality, which we'll hear about later in future sermons, as he killed members of his own family. But all of it, brothers and sisters, was a testimony to God's sovereignty and God's plan for his people. But it's into this kingdom, and under this king's rule, Herod the Great, that Matthew explains to us in verse 1, 
that Jesus, by God's promise and design, is born. And he's born in Bethlehem of Judea, which was once the city of David, a small village five to six miles southwest of Jerusalem. But now, courtesy of Rome, it is a village that belongs to King Herod the Great. And it is the birth of Jesus, Matthew explains in verse 1, that brings Magi from the east to Jerusalem. And it brings them to the religious and political capital of the Jewish people and the seat of King Herod's throne and his kingdom. Why? Well, that brings us to our first point for this morning and our only point for this morning. I'm slowing down in my old age. Can I have my... uh, Thank you, AV team. They're one step ahead of me. This is our point for this morning, and I believe ultimately this is the big truth of this portion of Scripture. Jesus is the light of God's Word, who has come to lead His people out of the darkness and into the light. Matthew's burden is for us to understand who Jesus is according to God's Word. And the testimony of this passage is that Jesus is the light of God's Word, who has come to lead His people out of the darkness and into the light. And to appreciate this truth and also what Matthew is showing us in this passage, it's necessary for us to understand who the Magi are and how unusual and incredible their appearance in Jerusalem, the religious and political capital of the Jews, is. We've sort of dumbed this passage down and we've numbed it out a little bit by our Christmas cards and our nativity sets. But from the Old Testament onwards, and let's remember who Matthew is writing to. Matthew is a Hebrew or a first century Jew writing to the first century church that has just been born that is filled predominantly not with people who look like you and I. It's predominantly filled with Jews who have converted or have been saved by the Lord. And from the Old Testament onwards, and for this community in particular, what they were sensitive to was that the Magi were notorious for being the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. And in fact, they were more than just enemies, they were the leaders of darkness. Magi, from which we get the word magic or magician, The Magi were the pagan priests who served as the advisors to the kings of Babylon and Persia. And they served as the advisors to the kings of Babylon and Persia because of their expertise in astrology, the study of the stars, and also their expertise in the dark arts. If you go back into the Old Testament, Magi are first mentioned as Moses comes into Egypt with Aaron and they deliver signs that are given to them from the Lord to show Pharaoh that God is the ruler of the world and that Pharaoh needs to listen to their God whether he knows them or not. And what does Pharaoh do? He brings out his magi. You've got tricks, i got tricks too. And he brings out his magi in order to perform and duplicate or counterfeit what Moses and Aaron do. And they are the source of his counsel, his strength, and his ability to refute who is this God 
who says, set my people free. And then you fast forward to the era of Joseph and also Daniel. And in each of those cases, there are those who read the stars and who interpret dreams and who are called upon by pagan kings to inform them what the gods desire or what the gods want and how you should do things, whether you should go into battle, who you should crown king, who you should marry, every aspect of your life in order to have favor with the gods. And it's not uncommon, or I believe even implied at times throughout Scripture, that these are the men who typically oppose God and His people directly or indirectly. It's not surprising that throughout the history of the church, but also through the history of Judaism, that the Magi were viewed as the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, leaders of darkness. And for pagan priests such as these to leave their pagan courts and their kings and to suddenly appear in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the place of the worship of the one true God and His people, was nothing less than bizarre or strange. The only contemporary example that I can think of, it would be as if a Buddhist monk or a Muslim imam showed up for our Advent service in their full regalia of robes. And though we might be excited about that, it would still be remarkable, and I'm sure most of us in the back of our mind would be saying, great, what are you doing here? What's going on? And this is the same impact that it would have in the community in Jerusalem and also among first century Jews. And just like the genealogy of Jesus, when unusual people begin to show up where we don't expect them in God's Word, God is typically doing something unusual. And He's doing it to fulfill His Word and to get our attention. And even more startling than their appearance in Jerusalem is the question they ask and the reason they give in verse 2 for leaving their pagan courts and their pagan kings. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's a very awkward question to be asking in Jerusalem, which is the seat of King Herod's throne. Why? Because that's his title. He is the king of the Jews, according to the Roman Empire. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And the implication that would have been clear to all who heard this is here are these world experts in astrology. And when they're making comments of someone whose star has rose, which was typically associated with the birth of gods, the clear implication is that the title, King of the Jews, and the birth of this child comes from a power that is greater than Rome and greater than King Herod. That there has been a universal event that the Creator of the heavens has made clear and announced to all through a supernatural light from above. This is what has led these men to this place, allegedly. For we saw His star when it rose, and we have come to worship Him. Foreign priests would understand what it meant to worship someone. 
And it is not a word that is used lightly. These foreign priests have left their pagan places of worship to do what? They have come to worship a new king. And how often does this happen? And how can we account for any of this? Well, if you read many of the New Testament commentaries, many of the New Testament scholars and experts, at a loss to explain this, write this off as myth. Many of them will say, Matthew was just grabbing a bunch of stories and putting them together to support his agenda to show that Jesus is the light of the world and Jesus is the king. And some will cite scientific research which has tried to ascertain what the star was that existed at that time. And they have not been able to, from our scientific calculations, to come up with a specific star that was moving in the Middle East at that time. Well, this is myth, and this is legend, and this is the stuff of Santa Claus on Christmas. But in verse 1, Matthew uses one word to explain what is happening. And that one word that he uses to explain is, Behold. Behold. Could I have my next slide, please? In Matthew's Gospel especially in these opening chapters, when Matthew uses the word, Behold, he is calling our attention to a supernatural sign of God's sovereign and supernatural fulfillment of His word to show His people who Jesus is. He uses that word, Behold, repeatedly to call our attention and say, Hey, I want your attention. God is stepping in and doing something supernatural or special that men cannot do in order to fulfill His word and bring His salvation to His people. And so I have them listed above. Matthew 1.20 Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream. In Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Supernatural birth of Jesus. Matthew 2.13 and Matthew 2.19, once again, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And then moving forward to Matthew 3.16, and this is the baptism of Jesus. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Each case that Matthew uses that term, behold, he's pointing to us and getting our attention and saying, You need to watch and look. God is stepping in and doing something supernatural and special to show that salvation is a work of God. And He's doing this to fulfill His Word, and He's doing this to show us who His Son is. Do we still believe in signs and wonders? Well, our doctrinal statement makes the point that the signs and wonders era has come to a close, even as the canon of Scripture has come to a close. But, brothers and sisters, the test of signs and wonders is where do they lead? If they call attention to us and our spiritual gifts, 
Those signs aren't coming from the Lord. Because the signs of the Lord and the beholds of Scripture always point in one direction. They point to the Word of the Lord and they point to Christ. And that's what Matthew does each time. So when in verse 1 and 2, when Matthew begins his account of the Magi's arrival in Jerusalem, he uses the word, Behold. Behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. What's Matthew saying here? saying, here's the explanation of these unbelievable events and why these strange men, who are known to be the enemies of God and the practicers of the dark arts, here's why they've shown up in Jerusalem and they're asking these questions. Here's what led these strange men to come and worship Jesus. It is nothing less than God's sovereign and supernatural fulfillment of His Word. It's nothing less than God doing what no man can do. The creation of a new and supernatural light in the heavens that is used to bring God's infamous enemies and the enemies of God's people to Jerusalem to bend the knee and to worship the King of His promise. Behold reminds us that the appearance of the star and the appearance of the magi is the work of God. That points us to His Word, and it points us to His Son. Now let's remember for a moment who Matthew's original audience is. Matthew is a first century Jew. He is also an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, who's writing to first century Jewish believers. Now let's consider their history for a moment. Their recent history for the past 400 to 700 years has been the history of exile. The history of exile and the history of foreign kings where God's judgment on His people for their persistent refusal to trust and follow Him as who? Their king. Where does that lead them? It leads them to God's Word. God promised King David when He gave the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, that there would be a seed of David who would be on the throne of David forever, but that he would discipline David's sons. And when they disobeyed, God promised to bring judgment. And that is unfolded and unpacked in the rest of Scripture. And the heart of that disobedience is, will they trust me and obey me as their leader and their king, the one who leads them? Or will they follow their hearts and will they worship the kings of the surrounding nations? We want kings like that. Big palaces, big chariots, big gold, big bling, all the things of the world. And God promises throughout the scripture, He's going to bring judgment And God's judgment is typically always the same. You want it, have at it. You want the hot girl, I'll give you the hot girl. You want the hot career, I'll give you the hot career. You want the hot car and the hot house, I will give it all to you. And you will see 
that you will become a slave of all of those things and you will live out the sadness and sorrow of being ruled by the corrupted things of this world. Because there is only one king who gives life. And there is only one king whose steadfast love endures forever. And there is only one king who gives joy and forgives sin and delivers from darkness. And that king is the God of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, that's what most of the Old Testament prophets are all about. And the history of the Jews in first century, when you go back, is the history of coming out of exile. And that exile was predominantly in the Babylonian and Persian empires. So who was it who ruled their lives? The kings of Persia, the kings of Babylon, and the Magi. They knew firsthand what it was to live under a dark rule led by dark men. By the rivers of Babylon, there we laid down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. All those psalms that show the brokenness and the despair, but also the hope. Because the hope at that time that kept the Jewish people, at least the remnant faithful, to remember their God and to turn and repent were the promises of God, not only of judgment, of salvation as well. That if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and if they turn from their sin and repent, and they come and once again cry out to the Lord and worship Him as King and place their trust and call upon Him as their leader and as their Lord, I will remember them. And God promises that He will deliver them and bring them out of exile and bring them back to the house of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it was those promises that sustained the children of Israel during times of darkness and gave them hope in the darkest moments. If God is going to be faithful to His judgment, and we've seen He's done that. He's destroyed the temple. He's thrown us out of Israel. He's brought us into bondage. If He's faithful to keep His word in judgment, He will be faithful to keep His word in salvation. Brothers and sisters, what gives us encouragement and strength during the dark seasons of our life? What is it that gets us through when the things and the powers and the pressures of this world seem to be predominantly darkness and not light. Well, for the children of Israel and the people of God, it has always been the character of God and the promises of God. And some of the promises that the children of Israel and the Jews, even leading up into the first century, who were living under the darkness of Roman rule, And we're still waiting for the fulfillment of God's salvation. Partially done, brought out of exile, and brought back to the place of the Lord with a rebuilt temple. But not yet complete. Well, I've listed some of them on the overhead. Numbers 24-17. These are scriptures that... Faithful and religious Jews who hoped in the Lord would remember. Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
And this was spoken by another pagan magi named Balaam about God raising up a king and a rule of universal and global importance. Psalm 47, the psalm we read this morning. And I didn't choose that psalm. J.C. did. It's just part of the normal readings as we're walking through. But it's a messianic psalm. Have a look at Psalm 47, what Danny read for us this morning. And I'll highlight some of the verses. Verse 2, Psalm 47. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared as what? Let me hear you say it. A great king over all the earth. Verse 7, drop down. For God is the king of all the earth. Drop down to verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples, the nations, the goyim, the ethne, gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. They're making reference to a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him... The nations of the world would be blessed. Genesis 12 through 17. Isaiah 11:10. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, talking about the world, of him shall the nations inquire. The nations of the world are going to come to that shoot of Jesse. To ask for counsel and ask for help and to worship Him. Isaiah 61. Arise. So it's the beginning of Isaiah, the end of Isaiah. Arise. Shine. For your light has come. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's throughout Scripture. This was the promise and hope that God had given to His people. And when the priests of darkness appear in Jerusalem to worship the King of the Jews, because they have seen the rising of a supernatural light in the heavens, Matthew is reminding his first century audience and us of all the promises of God's Word that God is fulfilling in one place. In the birth of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And He's doing it all according to His Word. Brothers and sisters, this is the blueprint of the Gospel. The God of Scripture is the God of the impossible. Who saves undeserving and unexpected sinners. And He does so... By a variety of providential and supernatural means, but he always does so by bringing them to his word and ultimately bringing him, bringing them to the worship of his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Could I have my final slide, please? It's because Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is the light of God's Word who has come to lead His people out of the darkness and into the light. 
That's what God has done in the lives of these magi. And it's a testimony, brothers and sisters, which God had repeated throughout the Old Testament and the New. There is no one who is beyond the salvation of God. That's Jesus' name. Jesus' name is Yahweh is salvation. You're going to go and hope in all of these things to save you. Money, finance, career, the kings of the world. But there is only one who saves, and that is Yahweh. The God of covenant, the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament. And when He saves, He is able to take sinners out of the deepest darkness. Because He is the God of steadfast love, the Creator of the universe, and with Him nothing is impossible. And it's just like, brothers and sisters, the genealogy of Jesus. At unique moments in God's plan of salvation, God saves unusual, unlikely, unworthy sinners. And He does so not only to humble God's people who have been raised in the church or raised in the temple and think, hey, we got it together because we know the secret handshake. He does it to humble them and also remind them that salvation is the mighty work of God, not the mighty work of men. And this is very much the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He goes through through 1 through 8 and shows us the greatness of God's salvation. What is the gospel? The gospel, it's the power of men to fix their lives through good choices and great counsel. You should start throwing rocks because that's blasphemy. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of who? All men. For the Jews first, but also for the Greeks or also for the Gentiles. The power of God for the salvation. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's not good advice. It's not a blueprint to a better life. It is the power of God for the salvation of all men. The gospel is what God has done to save good people, nice people. It's what God has done. We forget this, brothers and sisters, after we get cleaned up and we spend some years in the church or our children grow up in the church, we think the gospel is for nice and good people. And so when the sketchy people show up, it's like, oh, what are you doing here? And Paul reminds us, you were like that before, before God got a hold of you. Your life, the fact that you are here in the presence of Christ and worshiping Him, is only because God has had mercy on you and God is able to do the impossible and He's opened your eyes and He's brought you miraculously to the worship of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's enabled you, not through any... Intelligence or intellect or any seminary education through the revelation of God on high to see that this child, this person, this true man, true God is the light of the world who has brought you out of darkness and brought you into the light. So why are you hanging out in the darkness or pursuing the things of darkness? The mighty work of God is not limited by human boundaries or pride, ethnicity, politics, or brothers and sisters, here's the good news. It's not even limited by our past. And this is a big area, brothers and sisters, in biblical counseling. 
How often do we obsess about our past or why am I doing this or why are these things? As opposed to if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And as you go through, brothers, and we forget this, the history of Scripture, God saves remarkable and unusual people who are outside of the box because God chooses to do so. I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. So think, as you go back through the history of the Old Testament, of some of the folks who weren't raised and born among the people of God, and yet who were the legends of the faith. Job. Job, Melchizedek, Jethro, a priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, and of course, Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, and the list goes on and on and on and on. All the way through the New Testament. And brothers and sisters, where Matthew's going is, he's saying, look, this is your family. This is who you are. And as we look at ourselves today... And most of us are church people. Grew up in the church, familiar with the church. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we lose the wonder of what God has done in our hearts and lives. And we search for miracles where we should not because we fail to see what God has done in our hearts and lives. Why are a bunch of Asians gathering together on Sunday to worship and be in the presence of someone who was born of Jewish descent and allegedly is the founder of, according to the world, a Jewish religion or a Jewish movement. Matthew shows us, behold, it is because he is the light of the world, according to God's word. He is the light of God's word. And even more important for us personally... He is the light of the Word who has brought us out of our darkness and brought us into the light. This morning, brothers and sisters, I belabor this one point because many times we forget what it's all about or what we're doing in the house of the Lord. And when we do so, we lose sight of our joy We lose sight of our fellowship. We lose sight of all the good and sweet things that God has done. We of all people have every reason to rejoice and be joyful regardless of the darkness of our government, our nation, and our world. Why? Because no matter how dark it is out there, God has brought us out of the darkness and He has brought us into the light. And that light is the foot of the cross... And that light is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Humor me for a minute as I close. If you listen or read to the world of Christian media, it is obsessed at this time about the Christian movements in evangelicalism over the last 20 years that have risen and fallen. Fallen apart. It's obsessed with reviewing the history of abuse and the history of sexual scandal by the leaders of some of these movements. And the view within the media is if we just retell their stories, we won't make the same mistakes again. What a load of rubbish. 
Because there's only one who saves us from the darkness, brothers and sisters, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's a propensity within the church and among believers to get caught up in Christian movements and Christian ministries. Why? Because they feed the desires of our heart for something great and to be part of something greater than ourselves. But brothers and sisters, Christian movements and Christian ministries will come and go. And they are no substitute for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And at the moment we are following a movement or a ministry, and we lose sight of the light of the world. Whether you're standing here in the pulpit or you're sitting in a pew, whether it's the family movement, or whether it's the young and restless and reform movement, If it's a movement and a ministry rather than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that's leading your life, we are all in big trouble, brothers and sisters. So let me ask this question one final time. Who is leading your life? And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is it's not where you begin. Whether you were born and raised in the church doesn't matter a bit. What matters is where you end up. Because that is the true test and will always be of who is leading your life. Your career, your family, the desires of your heart, or the Word of God, the light of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, there is no sinner whose sin is too great to be forgiven by you. There is no sinner who is so lost that you are not able to bring them into the light. Lord Jesus, help us never, ever, ever to become jaded by the greatness and beauty of the gospel of a Lord and King who died so that we could walk with you as our joy, our love, our hope, and our life. In your name we pray. Amen.